Uh, two quick things before we jump into Mark 12. Um, number one, I would just love to reinforce what Hansley said about that uh, Disciple Makers Intensive coming up. So you'll find the sessions as well as the dates and times on this card. So take that home with you and make plans to attend. Um, I'll be speaking on, uh, those of you who are at our last members meeting know, the elders have proposed a, um, an updated vision document for the church. And so we're going to be asking you to vote on that in December. And so this meeting coming up in October, October 1st, will be really critical. And that, that first hour, I'll be teaching through that document and taking questions on it. Hopefully that'll be an encouragement to you. And then in the second session, my plan is for us to consider if, um, if, if that is our work together as a church, then how do each of us individually contribute to it? And it's not all the same. God has wired us, God's gifted us in different ways. And we'll try to think together about how our differences are part of collectively how we can accomplish uh, the goals and vision and dream that God has for us. And in the last session, I hope, uh, Todd prayed for uh, some of the other churches connected in the Grove Network. I hope to have one of the pastors here to talk with us about why we would want to work together to plant churches. And so those details are still being finalized. But if you're in town, I hope you'll make plans to come. A second thing, real, real quick, is you'll notice today that um, Pastor Tad and Katina are not here. Um, they are, um, Tad has begun today uh, his, his first sabbatical. And so for, um, for all the staff elders who are not in a lead pastor position, then um, after they've served a period of four years, which Tad has served a period of 19 years, uh, then they are, uh, they are up for a one-month uh, sabbatical. So he'll be out of pocket for the next month, so pray for him as they travel a little bit, and he's got a big stack of books to read. He's going to be working on some processing kind of things to try to help us be more efficient in the future, and um, so we'll look forward to, to seeing him back. Hopefully, everything won't fall apart. He runs a whole lot of things, so if you see something messed up, fix it yourself, um, and then we'll just uh, continue on together, all right? So, uh, we're in the middle of the final section of the book of Mark, and the first sort of two-thirds of the book moves pretty quick, but then the last third goes kind of slow. The author really slows down his pace and spends the last third of the book on only seven days, on the final week of Jesus' life. That tells us something about how important that last week is. This section of, in Mark started when Jesus entered the town of Jerusalem to the shouts and cries of people praising him as their king. And yet very quickly, we found that not everyone was happy that Jesus was in town. In fact, we began last week a section, uh, a subsection in which there are multiple groups of people who are going to come to Jesus sort of in successive waves, not out of desire to be honest and seek relationship with him or ask him sincere questions, but rather to trick him into saying something that would get him into trouble. Maybe serious trouble, like trouble like I'll kill you, or maybe trouble in the sense of no one's going to listen to you anymore. They won't follow you and we're going to run you out of town. 
In the first case, the first delegation of leaders trying to trap Jesus were the Pharisees and Herodians. And so we talked about them last week as they sought to trick Jesus around issues of taxation and politics. And Jesus' simple reply was, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, as I look around today, this is incredible. You came back. This is amazing. But this message won't be any easier than last week's was. Because this time, rather than a group coming and trying to trick Jesus with taxes and politics, this group is going to come and try to trick Jesus with resurrection and marriage talk. And it's not any easier. There's a, an old preacher's joke, yes, they do make jokes, that um, says, if you really want your church to grow, then just preach on sex or the end times, because those are the two topics that actually bring people out. So for today, I'm going to do both. I'm going to preach on sex in the end times. So you've come for a juicy one. Now, in all seriousness, last week's sermon was a challenge. And I was really encouraged by your response. It is a gift from God to pastor people who will listen to whatever the scriptures say and will submit themselves to God as God speaks. This sermon will challenge us not in exactly the same way, but will challenge us nonetheless. Some people will find uh, what I'll be sharing this morning to be troubling. And so my prayer is that even as a result of what we'll hear today, that if you are a Christian, you would find that what God says is not only true, but it's also good. That you'll find him trustworthy. And that where you disagree with him, you'll decide he's right and you're wrong, and that that's good. That Father, Heavenly Father, really does know best. So start with me following along in verse 18. It says this, And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Don't you feel like we just read something from some kind of weird joke book? Like, how many Jews does it take to screw in a light bulb? I mean, it is a bizarre story. Incredibly bizarre. Before we get to the hypothetical situation, 
the little story that the Sadducees told, we're going to need to do some heavy lifting, some heavy historical lifting to try to understand what was going on. Because just on the surface, this appears completely nonsensical. And so give me a couple of minutes to try to describe to you the backstory, what's underneath this passage historically. And then hopefully the question won't seem as bizarre to you. This group of people who came to Jesus, this delegation from the Sanhedrin, this time, you'll see in that first verse, in verse 18, was a group of people called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the elites of the day. They were the leading aristocrats. They were the wine and cheese kind of crowd. They were the folks that sat with the most power and were the highest um, regarded in the sense of they've got the most influence to wield. Those were the Sadducees. The Sadducees largely controlled the Sanhedrin. They, had the big, they were the, the party in the majority, if you will, and therefore they were associated with the priests and were particularly prominent, influential people. If, if it were today, we might say, uh, these were the one percenters who influence all of the rest of us. Verse 18 points out that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't believe Jesus would rise again, although it does mean that. It means more than that. It means that they thought there is no life after death. That when your body expires, then your soul or the immaterial part of you simply vanished. That you ceased to exist. There's also a bunch of other things they didn't believe. Uh, they believed there was no heaven or hell, nor angels or demons, nor uh, any version of a form of election. They, they believed all kinds of things were wrong that the Pharisees believed, that most Jews in the day would have believed. It's easy then to assume that they were the theological liberals of the day, that they were the ones who essentially were saying, hey, people won't actually believe any of that stuff anymore. So let's just form a sort of progressive wing of Judaism so that we can keep reaching people. It, it, it strikes us like that, but nothing could be further from the truth. The, the Sadducees were actually the ultra-conservatives of the day. They were the fundamentalist kind of folks. Now, some of you don't even know what I'm describing when I use the word fundamentalist. But those of you that do would understand that these are the kinds of folks who think of themselves as being the strict literalists taking the Bible the most seriously. And so how in the world did they reach the conclusions they reached? Well, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it. They thought everything else after that had been added and was watering down 
the first five books and therefore not true. And in their reading of the first five books, they saw no evidence of the resurrection. They saw no evidence of heaven or hell. They saw no evidence of angels or demons. And so they held tightly to the view that none of those things are true. Now, let me push pause on the history lesson, and you just take a deep breath. (sighs) All right? And as you're taking a deep breath, let me give you two applications from the fact that a group like that existed. Number one, friends, understand that this, this is always what happens with legalism. Now, sure, that was a particular cultural form of it. But legalism is adding things to the faith that God didn't say. And when you do that, eventually the stuff you add becomes more important than the stuff that God has actually said. And so in a weird way, legalists end up becoming people who sort of circle around to, well, those things don't matter anyway. Because if you add things to God's law, then you end up taking away promises from God and commands from God. You have to. That's always how it works. Now, perhaps today we don't do this as drastically as cutting out everything from Joshua to Malachi. However, we can still find ourselves ignoring some of God's instructions because we've replaced them with others of our own. Be very, 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 very careful about a fundamentalistic approach to Christianity. It will lead you to add things and expect things from people and yourself that God doesn't. And why that's so incredibly dangerous is because it will end up taking away things that God does. That makes sense? Now, second observation. Sometimes people will reject uh, what, what you might call, uh, for lack of a better term, organized religion or organized Christianity. And they'll say things uh, something like this. Me and Jesus are just fine all by myself on Sunday mornings on my couch. I don't need any of that formal church stuff. And sometimes people say that because sort of the reason they give is, well, all y'all, meaning all y'all that do what you're doing, I lived in Oklahoma, they say y'all there. All y'all, or you-ins is another weird word people use there, they... They don't agree on anything. And look at how many denominations there are. Look at how many different kinds of churches there are. Nobody agrees about all that stuff anyway. So since all y'all can't decide what's true, I'll just do me and Jesus at home. Are you with me? Okay, so they, this is fairly common in our day. The problem with that is, that the presence of disagreement, and let's just admit there is disagreement, the presence of disagreement doesn't mean that there is an absence 
of real truth. Disagreement doesn't prove that you shouldn't try. It simply shows we need more humility and we need to stick our noses in the text better and listen more and talk less. And furthermore, that's not a new problem. The Sanhedrin was largely made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees rejected resurrection. They said there's no life after death. There's no angels or demons. There's no heaven or hell. The Pharisees in the exact same group disagree on every single one of those things. And that was 2,000 years ago. People have disagreed about spiritual truth for as long as there's been sin. This is not a new challenge. Now, today it is easier to spread dumb ideas than it's ever been. And so we do face a unique challenge today in that anybody can smack up a website and add credentials to their name and start sharing stuff. And so that is a challenge for us, but it's not as though people started having unprecedented disagreements because they got bored during COVID. This stuff has been around a long, long, long time. So friend, don't let the presence of spiritual disagreements serve as an excuse for not really leaning in and getting involved in a church. Even people who are members here, do we all agree on everything? Gosh, no. But that's not a valid reason to neglect the things God does tell us to do in loving one another, serving one another, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable. And we agree on way more than we disagree on. We just need to like turn the temperature down on the disagreement. It's okay not to see everything exactly the same way. May this, rather than cause us to back away, encourage us to lean in. And may it remind us that in our search for understanding theology, we need humility. And we need to passionately seek God rather than trying to win arguments. Remember, church, that God's revelation of spiritual truth is reserved not for the smart, but for the humble. Insight into what God has said is a gift from God. And it's a gift He gives when we rely on His resource, namely the Holy Spirit, not our ingenuity and good wit. Now, back to the Sadducees. They were getting sad, you see, so we need to come back to them. Because they rejected any notion of resurrection, they came to Jesus with a hypothetical question. Now, let your eyes glance back over the question they raised, the situation, verses 20 
21 and 22. The story seems absurd, and on one level it is, but let's hear it out anyway, okay? A woman gets married, and she gets married because she expects happily ever after, a boatload of kids, lots of laughter, a wonderful, joyful life, and then death. However, what she actually got is she got married, and for reasons we're not told, her husband dies, and there has been no child born. Now, today, that would be sad. But back then, that would have been an enormous crisis because, you see, she had no means through which to take care of herself, practically speaking. And so she remarries her husband's brother. Now, that's not Jerry Springer stuff, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a few minutes, okay? But she remarries, and then the same thing happens. And then the third brother gets his turn, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. Seven brothers, all dead, and no heir. Incidentally, single men who desire to be married, if you're on your dating app and you come across someone who's gone through seven husbands, I would suggest you move on to another candidate. Now, eventually, this seven-time widowed woman dies. And here's where the Sadducees get to the, what they think is the punch. And you can almost hear them snickering as they ask their question. Assuming, Jesus, there's life after death. Assuming the resurrection. Then who's she married to? The woman dies, she enters heaven, she gets through the pearly gates, and then standing right there is what? All seven brothers lined up. It's like the bachelor extreme. (laughs) What's she going to do? Who's she going to pick? Their point is this. Their point is this. If Jesus, the resurrection, does actually exist then God has just put that woman in the most horrible of situations. And God would not do that. Therefore, there can be no resurrection. That's what they're saying. And Jesus is on record multiple times prior to this moment teaching the fact of resurrection. And so they think they've got Jesus absolutely nailed to the wall. Now, I'd guess you've got some questions, namely about this whole marrying in the family thing. Ew. Here's a short version. Let me try to explain that. God cares about women, and God is pro-family. If you question that, then Closely read the Gospels and look at how Jesus interacts with women. 
Let me give you just one example. The single longest recorded conversation Jesus ever had was with a Samaritan woman who'd been through a bunch of dudes herself. And Jesus talked with her alone, something culturally he should not do. He talked with her a long time, which he should not have done, culturally speaking. And he was loving and gracious and compassionate and told her the truth and invited her into a different kind of life, which he never, ever culturally should have done. Jesus is pro-women. This is an example of the fact that Jesus is pro-women. In the ancient world, property was owned only by men. And the name of the family and the inheritance of the family was passed down through the firstborn male child. And so if a woman was widowed without a child, then she found herself in literally the most horrible situation imaginable because there was no social, political, or educational safety net to catch her. Not only would she have the grief of a dead husband, she would also have the immediate tremendous problem of not owning a single thing, having nowhere to live, and no prospect of anything better. That was the situation a woman would find herself in. She would lose not only the husband, but everything else too. Because God is pro-women and pro-family, Deuteronomy chapter 25 contains a provision to watch over the widow. And for time's sake, we won't officially go there and read the whole passage, but let me try to just describe to you briefly what it says. This is an Old Testament law that is fulfilled and no longer expected today. Can I get a hallelujah? I got two brothers. I didn't sign up for that. But can you imagine how different sort of dating and courtship would be if you had a brother and you're like thinking... Boy, bro, I don't know about that one. <laughs> or, or the woman. Can you imagine it for her? Like, I like you, but I'm going to wrap you in bubble wrap because I don't want your brother. I mean, it'd just be so bizarre. But let me explain. Uh, the, the way God would take care of that widow in that most unenviable of situations is that she would, he would take care of the brother's widow for him. That's how God would take care of her needs. Culturally, literally, the only way you had to do that was to marry her, to bring her into your home, to take care of her, to absorb the cost of another person, to absorb the cost of taking care of your brother's estate and whatever jobs and land he was engaged in and to make babies together in hopes of an heir, 
a male child through whom that woman would then be provided for the physical needs ongoingly for the rest of her life. And the family name would then carry on. Now, that sounds cray-cray to us. But this was the common expectation and way of showing compassion to a woman in the ancient Near East. This is a culturally specific method of how God prevented and preserved widows in the harsh world of the Old Testament. The, the Sadducees thought Deuteronomy 25 disproved the resurrection because they thought everybody knows God wouldn't put the woman in the situation of having to choose one out of seven in eternity. Therefore, there must not be resurrection. You following their logic? I'm not asking if you agree with it, but it doesn't make sense. They thought they had trapped Jesus because Jesus had been teaching resurrection. Well, let's see what actually happened. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being read, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, just for a moment, consider with me some of the things we might hear today that Jesus didn't say. Some of the things we'd expect would likely be voiced, such as, Jesus didn't say, well, don't worry about that. Let's not even talk about doctrine. Doctrine divides. Love unites. Christianity is about love. Let's just avoid doctrine. Jesus didn't say that. Notice Jesus didn't say, quit taking the Bible so seriously, guys. It's not that big a deal. Let's just ignore the passages that we, we don't like or that we disagree on. And, and let's cling to the least common denominator. He didn't say that. He also didn't say, well, crud, who knows? There's so many views out there, we can have no idea of knowing what true is. And also, it isn't, isn't true just being true to yourself? Isn't, isn't truth living authentic to what you feel? Isn't that what true is? Jesus didn't say any of those things. Instead, Jesus said rather bluntly, you're wrong. Apparently, friends, it's possible to be wrong when it comes to doctrine. Apparently, there is things that God has said clearly and plainly enough that he expects everybody who follows him to see as right or as wrong. And apparently, 
there are times in which it is appropriate to say to somebody, you may be sincere, but you're wrong. And I love that last little phrase in the passage. It's pretty amusing. You are not only wrong, you're quite wrong. <laughs> Beloved, what causes wrong theology? What caused it for the Sadducees and what causes it for us? What causes wrong theology is twofold. Jesus listed it. He said, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What's the relationship between those? Well, the scriptures is where our doctrine comes from. We ought not get doctrine, theology, belief about God from another source. This is our source. And if we don't know the scriptures, then we also won't know the power of God. Because the power of God comes through the truths about God. The Sadducees were mistaken about something enormously important. Life after death. They thought that when somebody dies, when they croak, that's it. Dead, gone, cease to exist. Why were they so far off about such a significant doctrine? Because they didn't know the scriptures nor the power of God. In their legalism, they had missed the forest for the trees. They neglected to see that biblical faith is about the power of God, a power that's sufficient to even raise people who have died to life that will go on forever. Did you notice how many of the songs we sang today were about that or included that idea? It's essential to Christianity. God has the power to give everyone life after death and in the resurrection, the Bible teaches that our lives will be similar in some way and dissimilar in a lot of ways. And the Sadducees simply assumed, well, if resurrection is true, then we're going to be exactly the same. And you couldn't be married to seven people, therefore there must be no resurrection. Church, there's a massive warning here for us. We must be aware that in our practice of the faith, as we grow, it is possible to get so myopic and confused and have a pet theological issue that causes us to be blind to other things the scriptures say and to miss the very power of God in so doing. Did you know that I find that rather horrifying? That's scary. that there can be a blind spot that causes me to miss things that are true. One of the reasons the church, the local church, exists is so that if I start kind of wandering off and believe something that isn't true, it's that somebody can come to me and say, hey, dum-dum, that's, that's not true. The scriptures say here. Let me help you with that. Friends, as one of your pastors, if, if I start sharing something that is completely new, no one's ever thought of, don't find that to be encouraging. Find that to be really concerning. And come tell me. And if it turns out it's heretical and I won't repent of it, 
then run me off. Get yourselves a new preacher. The scriptures are where we find the ability to hear from God and to tap into the power of God to live a supernatural life. If we come up with new stuff nobody's ever thought of, or we start cutting things out that we don't like, we're in real trouble. Now, Jesus said to the Sadducees essentially this, you're wrong, and I'll give you two reasons why, or I'll show you that you've gone wrong along two lines. He says first in verse 25, the question you're asking is bogus because there is no marriage in heaven. That woman, she doesn't have any problem at all with the seven guys all lined up because she's not married to any of them. Now, I realize that is an issue we're going to have to think together carefully about. That there are, in a room this diverse, lots of reactions to that. That Jesus is categorically saying, marriage means no heaven. I mean, no (laughs) heaven. That's how I feel about you, baby. (laughs) Heaven means no marriage. And no marriage means no sex. Forever. Okay? Now, I know there's a few things that we need to think about. But let me go to the second reason. Because once I start talking about the first, you're going to not listen to the second. (laughs) All right? The second reason Jesus said you're off, or the, 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 the way they had gone wrong, is down in verses 26 and 27. Jesus says you're wrong because even your truncated Bible demonstrates resurrection. So remember I said they only, they only believed in the first five books. Matthew, I mean, Genesis. <laughs> Golly. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Everything else is not from God, not trustworthy, not authoritative. They only held to those first five. And so rather than going to one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament or one of the Psalms where resurrection is just blatantly clear, like nobody can miss it. Instead of going to one of those passages, Jesus instead reaches back into, quote-unquote, their Bible and says, you don't even understand your own little Bible because there is in Exodus, in one of the most famous stories, Moses in the burning bush, there is evidence of eternal life, of life after death, of life that goes on forever. This is super cool. Look at it with me again, verses 26 and 27. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, that's how they referred to those first five books, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus quoted from Exodus chapter 3, and he pointed out this, that when God introduced himself to Moses, 
He introduced himself by saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, for those of you new to the Bible or new to that story, that event, that conversation happened a long, long, long time after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. Like, long enough, they'd been probably eaten by worms, and just some bones were left dead. Not recent. And yet, God introduced himself by saying, I, 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 I am their God. Well, it, not I was. I am. If he's still their God, then what does that mean? It means they haven't ceased to exist. Now, there's, um, I've taught this topic a whole bunch of times. And until this last week, all that I'd ever seen in this text on this issue is this. It says, I am, not I was. You understand? I, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's essentially what I'd say, is the, the reality of the resurrection is shown because God is, not God was. And I still think that's true. But on another level, if we peel the onion a little bit deeper, Jesus just says that that text actually says far more. Far more. And you've done great. We're almost done. Okay, we've got about eight minutes left. Now hang with me. We're going to get back to that sex in the end time stuff. Okay? I'd summarize it this way for you. Since God keeps covenant, his people can be assured of the coming resurrection. Since God keeps covenant, his people can be assured of resurrection. Here's what I mean. God promised Abraham, and later he promised Isaac, and later he promised Jacob that they would be his people. And that through their descendants, God would bring about a people for himself out of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And that God is so committed to that promise, to that covenant, that he would be their people, that there must be resurrection because not even death stops the promises of God. Isn't that amazing? It is incredible. You don't have to cry about it. It's great news. It's great news. Abraham knew the covenant faithfulness of God because that covenant faithfulness of God when Abraham died, meant his body temporarily remains on earth and the immaterial part of him is now in heaven with God 
immediately. God is the God of Abraham. Friend, if you have any family member who knows Jesus Christ or any friend or a coworker, the moment they die, they physically, the body stays here for now until the second coming and the immaterial part of them immediately goes into heaven. But the way we so commonly think and talk about this is I'm looking forward to heaven because I'll be back with that person. And on one level, that's fine, but the Bible never talks that way. It says we look forward to heaven because we'll be with God. And everything busted and sad and hard that we live with on this side of heaven will be over. Now that relates to the second issue we need to circle back to. Jesus says there'll be no marriage in heaven. Why would that be? I got to sit down for this part. All right, here's the reality. For some of us listening to me right now, that feels like good news. In a room this diverse, some people receive the news that Jesus says there will be no marriage in heaven. It's done. That's a thing for this world only. Some people feel happy about that. If you are single and you don't want to be single, and you feel alone, and you feel set aside, and you feel like not included, and you feel even sometimes in church like sort of second class member, and you find yourself looking in the mirror asking, what's wrong with me? Friend, you will never have a single moment like that in eternity. Not a single one. If you're somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction and you want to be faithful to the Lord and you're working through what that means in terms of should I pursue a heterosexual relationship or should I not, you will never a single moment in heaven have to worry about that. The temptation will be gone forever. That's good news. And friend, if you're in a rough marriage, like you're laboring, trying to honor God and to love and respect your spouse, but it is not at all what you thought it would be when you said, I do then that struggle will not go with you into heaven. You will not be married in heaven. If you're in a rough marriage, know that Christianity is not Mormonism. Christianity is not built around uh, weird familial promises that the Bible doesn't make. Mormonism actually teaches, get a spouse, Get as many kids as you can, have a huge family, and if you live well enough and obey enough, then when you die, you'll get your own planet and you'll be with your family forever. That's, that's Mormonism. That's not Christianity. Christianity is God-centered. Heaven isn't about a big biological family. 
Be encouraged to be faithful in a bad marriage because that bad marriage is only temporary. And in your faithfulness now, God is storing up for you tremendous life in the next. So while there might be some in the room that feel like no marriage and no sex in heaven is good news, for those who have good marriages or who had it in the past and your spouse has passed, this is a very, very hard message to receive, isn't it? It's like, someone give me the scissors. I want to cut that part out. I understand that. Outside of my salvation, Joel, you are the greatest gift that God has given me. I, I frankly, cannot, I can't wrap my mind around um, eternity without you. That might be easier for you. <laughs> but we will be married only as long as one of us lives. And then that will be done. And it will have been a wonderful, glorious thing, however long it lasts. And then it will be over, over forever. We'll know each other, probably. We'll be fond of each other, I hope. <laughs> but we will not be husband and wife. We will be in Christ, brother and sister. Why would that be? Why would God have set stuff up like that? Maybe you know some reasons. Maybe you've come across them as you've read the scriptures. If you have some, I'd love to hear them. Email them to me, text them, me, come up and talk to me afterwards. I've thought of three things, and I'll close with these. I think these are three of the biblical reasons there is no marriage in heaven. Number one, everyone in heaven will live forever in endless, sinless, joyful existence. And in a place like that, there is no need for procreation because nobody's dying. You don't got to repopulate because nobody's expiring. And therefore, there's no need for marriage and no need for sex because those are the means through which that happens here, but it won't be happening there. Number two, everything good about this life and by God's grace, in my experience, marriage has been one of the best things I have experienced. Everything good about this life will be consumed by things even better in the next. We, if you're in a good marriage now, you will not be sulking around in heaven, grudging your teeth because God took away something good the very, very best moment in a good marriage will pale in insignificance to the life and joy and vitality you experience continually in heaven. Marriage is temporary. In heaven, it will be elevated. We won't miss it because we'll have more. Finally, 
What marriage dimly previews in this life will be the experiential reality in the next. And if you're going to put a, like an asterisk or highlight any of these reasons, this is the big one. What marriage dimly previews in this life will be the experiential reality in the next. To put that a different way, when the featured film is out, you don't keep watching the preview. The purpose of the preview is to whet your appetite for the feature film. What is marriage? Marriage is a dim but sure reflection of the relationship that Christ and his people will share for all eternity. When we are with him, with everybody else who knows him, no longer believing merely by the ear, faith comes by hearing, but now we see him. When that's the reality we are consumed with every single day, the preview is no longer needed. We'll have the real thing. And we won't be unhappy about it. Friends, Jesus is preparing his bride. His bride is the church. And he's filling his churches with rescued sinners that they might know him, love him, enjoy him, and one day be with him physically for all time in a place where there is nothing broken, nothing hard, nothing sad. Nobody dies. Everything's perfect. And most importantly, we're with him. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah. That's coming. So, single and fine with that. Single and hate that. Married and fine with that. Married and disappointed. Continue by God's grace and with the help of his people being faithful to him. This is temporary. Something better is to come. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage, and we are in need of your help. So I pray as my brothers and sisters go, and as we seek to live faithfully in light of what you've said, that people here who don't know you would be saved, and that people who do know you would enter into deeper fellowship with you as a result of what we've learned today. I pray that conversations both immediately following this gathering and throughout the week would often be full of working out the implications of this text together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.